it does look better at the hospital level, but people should not let their guard down. It is still out there and people are still dying from COVID. We tend to see a lot of young people come in with mild symptoms and oftentimes in their history, they've been out traveling or doing something very social, but we are still seeing people die on a daily basis from COVID. It is better, but it's not gone. When you have a health disparity, the first thing you need to do is to recognize that it exists. And once you recognize that it exists, then you can commit resources to fixing it. But if you're unwilling to admit that it even exists, then there's no chance that you're going to put resources towards fixing it. The more vaccine that gets distributed, the more vaccine the state gets. If the state is not efficient at getting vaccines into arms, then it's going to get diverted to other places. So not to say that we don't need to also pay attention to disparities, obviously, but you have to do both. You have to get a lot of vaccine moved, and then you also need to figure out how to get it to everybody. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Vitalist Spark podcast. I'm your host, John Ford. And this week, we've got a brand new COVID-19 roundtable with a brand new panelist that you'll meet in a moment. Together, we're digging into what everybody wants to know about. What's going on with vaccines? It's clear that Arizona as a state is staking its future on two strategies for COVID. The first relies on individuals being asked to do the right things regarding mitigation. The second relies on vaccinations. We'll talk about where the numbers are today and what they tell us about mitigation, and then we'll shift to all aspects of vaccinations, including systematic successes, operational shortcomings, and racial and income inequities, as well as the need for approval of more vaccines to address all of the above. As we head into the discussion, know this, things are continuing to improve in Arizona, but improvement in February still looks, numbers-wise, like the peak in cases we had over the summer. In other words, this better is not good enough. In order to slow the spread and really get to a better, safer place, you've got to stay home as much as you can, wash up and mask up when you can't, and shrink your circle. It really truly is that simple. When we don't do these things, cases rise and more people die. When we do, cases fall and we save lives. Do your part, slow the spread, be COVID smart. There's a lot to learn about in this episode, so let's get to it. It's time to talk about Arizona's improving numbers, plus all things vaccination related as of February 15, 2021. It is time for another COVID-19 roundtable. Joining us, as always, from the Arizona Public Health Association, Mr. Will Humble. Will, how are you? Howdy, just fine. And joining us for the first time from ValleyWise Health, Dr. Kara Guerin. Kara, how are you? Doing well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And last but certainly not least, the man with the numbers, Dr. Joshua LeBaire from ASU. Josh, how are you? It's good to be here. I'm feeling good. Thanks for being here. All right, let's get started. Josh, let's have the usual fun with the numbers. Where are we? What should we be thinking? Well, the numbers are coming down in the state. I think everyone's aware of that. They're not just coming down in the state. They're coming down nationally almost faster than we would have expected it, at least than I might have expected them to come down. So not 100% clear to me why they're coming down, but they are coming down. Still, they're not anywhere near where I'd like them to be. I mean, they're still in the thousands of new cases a day. We're still under testing, so we're not getting as many people test as we'd like to. And in the meantime, we're starting to get the vaccine into some arms, and, and that's, of course, encouraging. And probably most encouraging to me is that the vaccines, for those people who are vaccinated, seem to be working well. And by that, I mean 
in all the people who've been tracked and who have been vaccinated, there have been no severe disease. There's been no hospitalizations and no deaths. And so to me, that means the vaccines are doing what they're supposed to do, which is prevent people from dying. And so that's encouraging. That is encouraging. But Kara, the idea of numbers being down really translates to, at this point, better than they were, but still at par or maybe slightly just below the summer peak. So what does it look like at the hospital level? It does look better at the hospital level, but people should not let their guard down. It is still out there and people are still dying from COVID. We tend to see a lot of young people come in with mild symptoms and oftentimes in their history, they've been out traveling or doing something very social, but we are still seeing people die on a daily basis from COVID. It is better, but it's not gone. When you and I talked leading up to this podcast, you mentioned to me, uh, I believe it was a 24-year-old that after the entire family had experienced COVID, a 24-year-old ends up on an ECMO machine. Yeah. So we two cases that particularly hit me. There was one family where the father in his 50s died one week pretty suddenly from COVID. The following week, the mother died of COVID. And at that time, four of the five siblings were diagnosed with COVID and two of them had to be admitted. And they were telling me about how they live in a trailer park. That's very difficult social distance. So everyone kind of got it. Another patient I had much more recently was a 24-year-old man who was completely healthy, works at a grocery store, went about his regular business, and came in with COVID-like symptoms, very, very ill. He had said, you know, I really didn't want to come to the hospital, but I was trying my best to stay at home. He got intubated, so he got put on a breathing machine in the emergency department, and unfortunately, continued to get worse. So he actually had to be transferred to another hospital, be put on ECMO to see if there was any chance of his survival. So young people do well overall but there are some that do very poorly and we just don't know who. Well, Joe Gerald put out his report last week and I thought he put it pretty succinctly. He said, we've transitioned from a period of crisis to one of elevated risk. That's right. And the other thing he mentioned in there, and this is going to be something that the hospitals and all clinicians are going to have to deal with for a long time, which is that they're, some of the hospitals are finally able to begin providing procedures that have been canceled, postponed, suspended for two or three months now. And so you remember what happened in July at the surge where all the collective, the non-emergency procedures were suspended or canceled back in July. And it took the hospitals and doctors until like November to start catching up on those procedures that were needed. And that was just a month or that was more like the summer surge was like six weeks. This one was 10 weeks at least. So it's going to take probably till summer to get the procedures that were suspended in December and January and the early part of February done. We get that a lot. We get people that are just waiting for surgery and they have that much more pain. And we also anecdotally see people that skipped screening exams. So they come in with, rather than a lump in their breast, they come in with this huge mass. Right. Surgical removal of tumors is what's considered an elective procedure. So people who have cancers are waiting to get those removed. I mean, that's going to be rough. Tara, first of all, there's been the incredibly high levels of creativity that have been required in the emergency department to accommodate an influx of COVID patients. But then you also have the need to be incredibly on your toes for what could have been abdominal pain, but what is now a perforated bowel. Yes, that's exactly right. Of course, anecdotally on on my part, we're seeing people that wait longer and some diseases that are much 
further along in their process than we're accustomed to seeing. It is easier to get in touch with a surgeon because unfortunately they're not operating as much as they used to, but that's not typically the circumstances you want to be seeing a surgeon in when it's gotten that bad. And to speak to what Will was saying earlier is yes, the hospitals do, at least our hospital does feel like it's letting up somewhat, but it does exactly feel that like it's going from crisis to high risk. It's, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint, but it feels like a sprint. So we want to be like taking a deep breath and trying to relax, but we know we can't. I feel like we have to adjust that phrase though. It's actually not a marathon. It's an ultra marathon. That's so true. That's so true. And it, we don't see an end in sight. If you saw an end in sight and said, I'm not mile 25, I know it's done at 26, it would also feel differently. I guess the vaccine to some degree is a support, but it's not the end. We are almost, Kara, at the one-year anniversary of the moment that you had to choose what to do to protect your family. Talk about that story. It was actually the middle of March that I saw my first COVID patient, someone that had actually traveled to Europe. So my family, we didn't know anything about what to do. Um, And I knew that one day I was going to see a COVID patient. And did I go home afterwards? We just, we didn't know. No one really knew what to do. We were given guidance, but like so many other things, COVID was so new, we didn't really know what to do. So I decided to actually live away from my family for four weeks. It was a time when hotels were empty. So they're very kind corporation that put me up in a hotel for four weeks. Since then, it's kind of continued. I lived away from home for four weeks, and it was very difficult on my husband, my daughter, and I. Uh, I have a two-year-old son that's been living with my parents since July for childcare reasons. And then in the procedure category, my husband's had multiple hip surgeries that have been delayed. So it's been an interesting year. Yeah, you're really seeing it all. And an emergency room doctor who has a master's in public health. So (laughs) this is a bizarre spin for you because you can see it from all angles. Yes, it's very strange. It's very strange. Probably spent most of the past year just petrified to bring it home to my family and trying everything I can, yet still trying to live life and move on. Will, you can literally talk to one of the members of the Arizona Public Health Association face-to-face in this podcast. I know, it's great. (laughs) I'm kind of curious... How did it feel like when you got, I'm, I'm assuming by now that you've got your, your second dose of vaccine. How did you feel like seven days or a week after that second dose? Seven days, I felt fine. The first two, three days, I slept most of the time. It didn't help that I had just come off a string of overnight shifts. Seven days, I was fine. Yeah. I was fine. You run the strange feeling of invincibility versus <laughs> realism because you're like, oh, finally I'm protected. It's like everyone else. I get so sick of wearing masks. And many of us have a very assorted different masks. We have the surgical mask. We have our N95s. We have our P100. So it's kind of determining like, which one am I going to wear today? What level of risk do I have today? Can I just get rid of this? But also realizing that It's good, but it's not the answer. I think my 78-year-old mother-in-law kind of put it best. She got her vaccine and she's like, now I can do whatever I want. And we were sitting at dinner and I said, you know, we only truly know that it stops you from dying and getting into the hospital. And she was so sad. It's like I wrecked her dreams of going to the grocery store. Although the good news is it does save her from the hospital. Yeah, I think that's oh, very welcome. So. I mean, <laughs> no, it's it's all relative, right? Like, yes, yeah. that is great. But for someone who has not gone to the grocery store in such an extended period of time, it's just a different calculation. So it is much well, better. 
Yeah. And but part of it is also like the risk benefit equation. So like for my parents who are 87, they got their second dose. And I told them it was less than a week ago. So I told them by this Saturday that they can go like they miss church. They miss their book group. My mom used to do ESL teaching for kids at one of the schools over in Scottsdale district. All of those things can come back. That's what I told them because there's benefits to it. The social disconnectedness that they had for so long. Now it's not over completely, but it's over for at least them and the cohort of their friends that have gotten the second dose. So there's that part of it, which to me, that's different than the store because the store is the benefit only in that you get rice or whatever. (laughs) Whereas a book club is a far bigger benefit to them. I completely agree. I think there's a lot of seniors that have just suffered so much emotionally and mentally and to be able to reconnect. Yeah. They came over for dinner last night. They were visibly different because they've had their second shot. Now they haven't waited long enough for the antibodies, but I could just tell my dad had a glass of champagne, you know, that's a weird thing. (laughs) He came over and said, do you still have that champagne from? (laughs) And I said, yeah. So we opened the champagne and I said, well, this is celebrating actually this upcoming weekend. To build some antibodies. But what we're hearing from ID specialists is that people who've been vaccinated with other people who've been vaccinated should be able to mingle without restriction. So in senior homes where they've done a good job of getting everybody vaccinated, those people should be able to interact. And I think it's important that we deliver that message because there has to be a benefit to all this. There has to be, otherwise it's just Debbie Downer the whole time. It's just all negative stuff. And so I think it's important to get that message across. I have not hugged my parents in almost a year. So as soon as my mom gets her second dose, there's going to be a lot Absolutely. of hugging. <laughs> yes. And and eating dinner together and not yes. wearing masks and all that. Absolutely. Yes. What you're saying is more people can taste my horrendous cooking than ever before. <laughs> right. Different kind of public health risk. now that we're talking about this anticipatory moment that many people have not yet accessed it brings us logically will to the discussion of vaccine distribution last week a whole bunch of numbers came out some from the state some from the county talk about what they were and what they say it started when i was trying to get my parents the first dose of vaccine this goes back into January, early part of January. And I experienced that state registration Mm -hmm. website for the first time, trying to get them their appointments. And it was me, my wife, and my daughter. We all had our laptops open on the Wi-Fi. And it was like we were buying World Series tickets or concert tickets or something like that. And we were hitting on it. And my daughter was more successful than we were. She has a new computer and she is using Chrome versus Edge. And so she got the appointments and was able to score those. And as we finished that experience, it occurred to me that I had just seen firsthand the fact that this appointment system is disenfranchising low-income Arizonans because A, we had to be on the website. This was a Tuesday morning, I think Mm -hmm. after MLK holiday, we had to be on the thing on Tuesday morning, really for the first hour and a half or two hours or something like that. And if you weren't on the computer right then, you were not going to get a vaccine. So if I happened to be a, somebody who worked at Ace Hardware or Costco or something, and I needed to be on site for my job, by the time I got home from my shift, all the appointments for the next month were gone. So that was one thing. The other is you have to have good broadband and Wi-Fi in your house 
You need a good computer. Yeah. You need a flexible job. All those things I knew intuitively were leading up to a health disparity for lower income Arizonans. And then I set about trying to prove it. You could go back to, I had quotes in the newspaper going back a month or so saying, I have a hypothesis that I cannot prove that the wealthy are being favored in the system. And so I kept banging the drum, not just me, others too, to try to get this health department to post the zip code data for who had been vaccinated so far. And they still haven't produced that. But I started talking to journalists and Stephanie Innes and others. And I said, hey, start dropping in some records requests to try to get this thing loosened up. She did. She put it in with Maricopa in the state. And Maricopa County did publish that information last Thursday. It showed exactly what I thought we'd see, which is much lower vaccination rates in the lower income zip codes. You can see in the Phoenix area, a trend from the west side of I-17 all the way from Glendale to South Phoenix, where the percentage of qualified people that have been vaccinated is in the 30 to 40% range in that strip. And in South Phoenix, it was less than 15%. And -hmm. then if you look over in Scottsdale and the wealthier parts of town, Paradise Valley, you see that essentially it said 104% or something. I think maybe that's the winner visitors in that pool. But like 100% of everybody who qualified was able to get a vaccine in those richer parts of the valley. I'm sure it's multifactorial, but I'm certain that the website that the state's using that everyone needs to go through, at least so far, is a big, big, big factor as to why that is. And I just want to address one thing before we open it up for discussion on this is that this is a real disparity because what Maricopa County did is they worked their denominators. They put in the denominator of those zip codes the qualified members of that zip code using census data. So because the census includes things like occupation, whether you work as a teacher or law enforcement or healthcare worker, or what your age is, 65 or 75, they put that into the denominator. And so when you see the percentages on the Maricopa County website, you are looking at the percentage of qualified persons. And I've heard Director Chris say, well, it's not matching up right now because we phased this out by occupation. Well, in Maricopa County's case, they controlled for that in the denominator using census data. This is a real health disparity. And so I'm hopeful, but not optimistic. There are some things they could do to level the playing field. Actually, I'm not hopeful. I don't think they're going to do anything about it. I, I just don't. They're saying they are. I know Dr. Christ is interested in figuring out ways to get the vaccines out. To- yeah, In terms of that, yeah, I'm talking about the registration website. There are some other things you could do, like get some yeah. mobile clinics out there, yes. get more vaccine to the F- federally qualified health centers. Yes. But when you double down on the very big State Farm site and you prioritize vaccine to that location, which is efficient, I concede, that's a very efficient site in terms of getting the number of vaccines permitted. It's not efficient in terms of getting vaccine to hard to reach populations. So if you prioritize your supply of vaccine to this high output site, you are then pulling vaccine from places like federally qualified health centers and mobile clinics. So my concern about prioritizing a place like State Farm is that where we are right now in terms of supply, it'll probably be different in April. But right now, 
there's not enough to go around and State Farm is being prioritized over other types of clinics. There are two issues there though. So the State Farm site is efficient because they have a good flow through in terms of getting needles in arms. The bigger issue I think you were addressing earlier in terms of disparity is this question of how you register for it, which is all online technology driven. And I think part of the problem there is that at least the two vaccines we have at our hands right now are two-dose vaccines. And so the benefit to technology is it allows you to track who gets it and when so you can make sure everybody gets their second dose. If we had a situation where we could get everything into arms with one single dose, the demand for the technology would not be as strong. But there still needs to be solutions for sure. You need to get it out there. It's not as easy to think about how you're going to manage the two-dose situation without some degree of technology. Well, now, part of the data that came out that was released was vaccination rate by race. And it's very clear that tribal communities are getting the vaccine at a higher rate than urban Latino or urban African-American groups. Mm -hmm. So it is possible. Yes. I would argue that the technology is the tracking. We're putting this on the patient and that's also not equitable because that requires you to have a computer to read and write English. I agree the technology is an issue, but it's something that can be overcome if you put enough resources towards it. So if you have people that if you man the phones and you have people that speak Spanish, that's a way to overcome it. I suspect, I don't know, but I suspect that part of the reason that tribal areas are getting vaccinated so well is they have a very good infrastructure in terms of people and at least getting in touch with people. And that's really what you need is you need to be able to get in touch with someone. You don't need them to be able to use the technology. So I would touch on real quickly how Minnesota's done it and other states as well. And so instead of a have a like a gold rush type of system, which is what we have, they have a system where you go in and register once. Let's say you're 68, you go onto the portal, you register, you put your demographic information, you even put your insurance and all that kind of stuff with your Medicare supplemental, whatever that goes into the system. And then on the back end, the state then has all that registration information and they can create a random selection algorithm whereby they select people randomly from the pool that will level the playing field somewhat in terms of health disparities. Plus what you could do, you could even put your hand on the scale. I don't know if Minnesota is doing this, but you could look at the underserved zip codes within your community and go to the back of the system and give them a statistically higher percentage chance of being selected in that drawing for the vaccine. So there are ways that it could be done, but at this point, I don't expect the state to do any kind of intervention to change it. I just don't see the interest in it because when you have a health disparity, the first thing you need to do is to recognize that it exists. And once you recognize that it exists, then you can commit resources to fixing it. But if you're unwilling to admit that it even exists, then there's no chance that you're going to put resources towards fixing it. Kara, what gets measured gets done. And right now, the state is just counting shots in arms. And so a high efficiency pod like State Farm Stadium makes a lot of sense. From the perspective of an emergency room physician who sees the populations that walk through the door and the devastations that are happening in specific communities, what would you recommend the state do? Well, first, I don't think it's a surprise that this happened. This was bound to happen. What I recommend they do, I think probably, as Will said, get the vaccines in the hands of the groups that are already prepared to give it, already have access to people that are disparaged. So FQHCs 
or give it to hospitals, but not only vaccinate inpatients and healthcare workers, but also patients that are coming to the clinics for other reasons. I think that's probably a large part of it. And change the system in which you sign up for an appointment, not make it technology-based, make it phone-based and offer in multiple languages. Will, can you put yourself in the shoes of the people who are making the decisions and see why they are doing what they are doing? Well, when you're a health director, you have to work in a way that's consistent with what your governor wants you to do or else be do brinksmanship and decide to leave. So, I mean, I've worked for a governor too for six years, different governor. You have to make decisions that your governor and his or her team is going to buy off on. There is also another motivator, right? The more vaccine that gets distributed, the more vaccine the state gets. If the state is not efficient at getting vaccines into arms, then it's going to get diverted to other places. So not to say that we don't need to also pay attention to disparities, obviously, but you have to do both. You have to get a lot of vaccine moved, and then you also need to figure out how to get it to everybody. We also got word last week that expansion would come to Walgreens, that it would come to certain Costco's. I was literally in a Fry's grocery store this weekend and it had a sign up that said, make your appointment. That's a federal pharmacy program. So this two weeks ago, President Biden announced the federal pharmacy program was going to roll out on February 11th. And it did. The feds have contracts with Safeway Fry's and Walgreens in Arizona, and they are getting the allocations of vaccines from the feds. The federal bolus for this week was a million doses. So Arizona's share of that would be 20,000. Those three are the places that you can sign up for. And I don't know how it works getting an appointment and that kind of thing. But the pharmacy program moving forward is going to become more and more dominant. Biden administration said this is the first week for this pharmacy program. And it is going to ramp up, I'm sure, because it's also, by the way, an opportunity to get at this health disparity risk because where they're located and the fact that you can drive in and talk to somebody about the vaccine and maybe even get your name on a sheet of paper like they do with shingles and stuff. I think we're going to see a lot more of the federal pharmacy program moving forward. So, Will, it seems like between expansion to pharmacies and what we think is going to happen with pending approvals of other vaccines, that there is the possibility that things will even out in a way that is more equitable. Because those other vaccines, like Johnson & Johnson, are single dose and they don't require the cold chain. It's a lot more flexible. We always talk about Moderna being more flexible than Pfizer. Oh, my goodness. Johnson & Johnson is like, it's a snap. It's a refrigerator vaccine. It's not going to spoil. It doesn't have the temperature controls. You don't have to use a big lot. And it's a one and done. I do think that there's going to be some messaging issues that state and county public health and clinicians need to be prepared for, which is this, I'm afraid that there's going to be some sort of whisper campaign against the Johnson and Johnson vaccine because it's perceived to be less effective than the other two. And I'm also concerned about the perception that if that ends up being the vaccine that is predominantly used for low-income communities, that people will perceive it as being a second-class vaccine. I don't see it that way. I see it as any vaccine is life-saving that's been given emergency use authorization. All of them 
prevent you from dying and or yep. even being admitted to the ICU. The difference is that there's a slightly higher chance with Johnson & Johnson on a single dose that you might have some symptoms at some point of COVID. But look, it's basically a ticket to ensure that you're going to live and that you won't even have a bad type of pneumonia that puts exactly. you in the ICU. Uh, but they need to be start thinking about that now because I can see it coming where there could be a perception later on because of the, what came out of the phase three trials that it's not as good. But I don't see it that way. I see the Johnson & Johnson being probably a bigger ticket out of this pandemic than the other two. And for sure, globally, if you look at yeah. developing nations and COVAX, and we have, I don't think we've ever talked about COVAX on this podcast before. In terms of Africa and Latin America, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine being a one and done vaccine the way it is, that vaccine is going to be key it really in developing nations for putting this pandemic behind us. Kara, how do you overcome the idea of somebody walking into the emergency room and going, I know that Pfizer is 94% effective, and I know that Johnson & Johnson is 67% effective? Yeah, that's going to be hard. I think we'll really set it effectively if we didn't have a history of health disparities and things like the Tuskegee experiment, then this may not be an issue. But I can see the perception of that. And I wholeheartedly agree. This is certainly better, and I think it's just as good, but it's hard to convince people of that, especially people that just compare numbers and don't have a good, deep understanding of what's going on. The last question goes to all three of you. This is Mad Libs, the sentence completion edition. I'm going to start the sentence. You will complete it. And there are three. First sentence, I know we're all tired, but... COVID is still out there. You still have to mask. You still have to socially distance. You need to get your vaccine. This is not over. Josh, how about you? I know we're all tired, but... But there is light at the end of the tunnel. The vaccines are working. They will prevent severe disease. And if we can make it through the next few months by being careful, there is a future. Well, I know we're all tired, but... But let's keep having each other's back. All right. I like that. Sentence number two. From my perspective... The most important thing right now is, Will? To vaccinate. Josh, from my perspective, the most important thing right now is? I'm going to go with Will. I mean, I think we need to vaccinate, especially the high-risk population. Yeah. Kara, from my perspective, the most important thing right now is? I'm going to say keep at it. Keep washing hands. Keep trying to stay healthy. All right. One more. By the time we get to March, I'm counting on, Josh, I believe that by March, the most high-risk populations will be vaccinated, and I think that we're going to see a huge change in the way COVID is perceived. It's going to shift from a disease that kills a lot of people to one that is just very bothersome for a lot of people. Kara, by the time we get to March, I'm counting on? Hugging my parents and sending my child back to daycare. Will, by the time we get to March, I'm counting on? Johnson & Johnson's Novavax and AstraZeneca. Thank you, Kara, for making time to join us today. Thank you, Josh, for your continued even-handed insights. And thank you always to the tireless Will Humble. Together, we're marching into March, and we will count on what you are counting on, including improvement in the vaccine situation. Or put another way, let's make vaccinations more equitably available today and even more accessible tomorrow as new vaccines get approved with easier supply chains and greater production volume. Until then, please heed our panelists today and be COVID smart. 
positivity rates in Arizona are still too high, according to both CDC and state guidelines. Stay home as much as you can, mask up when you can't, wash up, and truly limit contact with people outside of your household. COVID may be more like an ultramarathon than a marathon, but it is definitely not a sprint. The Vitalist Spark will be back soon with another episode. In the meantime, our back catalog of episodes awaits your ears. There's a lot to listen to, including guests from across the state and national experts, too. Visit us on the web at vitalisthealth.org podcast. Check out all of our current and past episodes on Spotify, or simply reach into that podcast app you're using right now and select another show to find out what's going on related to health and well-being in Arizona. That's it for this episode. The insights, reflections, and takeaways from this dialogue belong at the family dinner table as much as they do in business settings, in city and town halls, and in the domains of healthcare and public health. So please, share this independent episode far and wide. Subscribe to the Vitalist Spark podcast and get notified as soon as new episodes are released. Or listen to the Vitalist Spark just like you listen to your favorite music on Spotify. Give us your feedback wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can also give us your input the old-fashioned way. Your corrections, complaints, and compliments are all welcomed by emailing us at feedback at vitalisthealth.org. Finally, remember this. With great responsibility comes great power. We'll see you back on the road to well-being soon.